0: Hey, Deserving Listeners. Today's episode is part two of me answering all of your emails about attachment theory. But I'm going to make this for patrons only because I want to reward the patrons for becoming a patron. So this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. I'm probably going to talk for about an hour, hour and a half, and I'm going to answer – Emailed questions related to attachment theory. So, if you're not a patron of the podcast and you want to hear this full episode, go to patreon.com and become a patron of Psychology in Seattle, and you'll get instructions on how to listen to this full episode along with hundreds of others, hundreds, hundreds of other episodes that are only available to patrons. Also, you should know that a portion of your pledge each month goes towards various charities that we support. And you can go to our website and see a list of all those, including scholarships. Uh, We've given out thousands of dollars in scholarships to people who are making a difference in the world. You can read those stories there. Anyway, become a patron of the podcast. Do it now. Join us. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone. Patrons, thank you so much. This first email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, Regarding the Erica and Stephanie episode number seven on 90 Day Fiancé, Stephanie exhibited issues with intimacy towards Erica. I thought this might be – so just chiming in here. If you don't watch these uh, videos, then you won't know what we're talking about here, but um, there is some discussion that will be universal, but just to get through this email. So regarding the Erica and Stephanie episode 90 Day Fiancé number seven – Stephanie exhibited issues with intimacy towards Erica. I thought this might be related to avoidant attachment style. However, this was not explored by you in the episode. Instead, you mentioned defenses and asexuality and aromanticism. How is Stephanie's behavior linked or not linked to avoidant attachment? And finally, what are your thoughts regarding asexuality and its expression? End of email. Well, it's been a while since I recorded that episode, so I don't actually remember what I said. Um, I've made hundreds of reaction videos and I'm reacting off the cuff without any notes, and so it's hard for me to remember what I said. But anyway, my from my memory, my hypotheses regarding Stephanie included the following, and I can never know because I would have to assess them in person, but given what was shown to us on the TV show, It seemed possible that she had relational traumas, possibly from moving away from her family when she was very young, not knowing English when she first moved here as a younger child and having to go to school and not understanding what's going on. I mean, that can be very traumatizing to a kid, which resulted – so some sort of relational traumas early in life that resulted in sensitivity to abandonment and then seemingly as an adult her way of managing – that insecure attachment is to preemptively try to prevent people from abandoning her Uh, throughout the season. She was frequently assuming that Erica was cheating on her or doing something bad or abandoning her when there was no evidence shown to us anyway, that she was doing that. Now, who knows? Maybe Erica behind the scenes was doing a lot of things we could never know. But, Uh, As an educational uh, thing on the show, I was like, well, what we're being shown here is potentially someone who has preoccupied attachment and is preemptively trying to stop uh, abandonment from happening, but through their aggression and hostility are actually provoking abandonment from the other person. And that's probably what I was referring to if I use the word defenses, meaning that To defend against what happened in the past, which is abandonment, Uh, some people will try to preemptively uh, eliminate the possibility of abandonment by demanding that people do certain things as a way of controlling them. And then uh, paradoxically, this actually results in people abandoning us. Uh, but you ask about avoidant uh, attachment style, you know, could be didn't look like it, given how reactive she was, if she were avoidant, she uh, pe- avoidant people, not always, but as a sort of cruising speed, they they tend to be fairly non reactive, because they concluded a long time ago that the, they don't really need other people, they do need other people, but they think they don't. And so they will. Uh, when push comes to shove, they're they're very quickly just to run away. Um, they might not run away in noticeable fear, and they might run away with noticeable fear. But at the very least, the the end result will be them distancing themselves and just like, okay, I'm out of here. You know, at the if if as soon as things get bad, it's like, oh, this is this is gnarly. I'm I'm leaving. <laughs> or even in their own minds, they might just be like, I'm leaving in my mind. Uh, I'm not leaving. This, the relationship because I don't feel like I can yet, but in my mind, I'm leaving. Uh, Stephanie never seemed to exhibit that. Uh, she, throughout the season, increasingly got more and more angry and more and more upset, more and more reactive to uh, behavior, be, again, behavior that we didn't see as a problem at all. Now, when people would email in about this couple, some people took issue with the way that I was reacting as being one-sided. They thought that I was being uh, harsh on Stephanie and not harsh on Erica. And uh, this is a broader issue that, uh, one, I'm reacting. So I'm not presenting some kind of thesis about uh, these people, uh, their reaction videos. So if I had time to not react and really sit down and work out a whole lecture, then yeah, perhaps I'd have some balance there. But uh, so there's that the second thing is is the show didn't show us much behavior from Erica that exhibited much to talk about because uh, you know in the course of the season Erica was uh, you know she liked Stephanie, she seemed a little I don't know well anyway, without go- recounting the whole season. there was just so much more to react to from Stephanie. Now, if Erica had given us more material, I would have reacted to it. Uh, the third thing I'll say is – and this is a mistake that a lot of people make, uh, whether it's um, as a client that comes to me, a couple that will come to me, or uh, training therapists in training will make this mistake, that somehow when I am commenting, for example, on Stephanie, that I'm blaming her. I'm not blaming Stephanie. Uh, I'm a systems thinker. I don't blame anyone. What I'm looking at is possible reasons as to why Stephanie would seemingly – preemptively try to uh, control abandonment and shoot herself in the foot. I'm not blaming her. I if there's someone to blame it's the way Stephanie was treated when she was growing up. And does Eric play a, Erica play a role in that? Yeah, of course. But I'm I'm not looking to blame. I'm looking to conceptualize. As a therapist, I don't I don't blame people. <laughs> what I'm looking for is how are we going to improve things? And one of the ways that we improve things is for everyone to understand why they have the defenses that they do, which requires some exploration there. It's not a bad thing. Everyone has defenses. I have defenses. So when I identify my own defenses, I'm not blaming myself. I'm just providing context for my reactivity, which isn't always rational. Stephanie's uh, reactivity was not always rational. Why would that be? Well, because of defenses. So, uh you know, I think most people understand that, but if you're not one of those people. Anyway, Um. So, asexuality and aromanticism. You know, I'm 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 trying to remember why I would have thrown that out there with regards to Erica and Stephanie because they didn't seem to exhibit that. But if I did throw that out there during that episode, I think I would have thrown it out there as a possible reason for why Stephanie uh, prior to meeting Erica in person was very much into their relationship and then once Stephanie went to Australia and they met in person, Stephanie seemed to pull back physically. It it was it was a little unclear in the way they edited the show but it seemed like eric uh, stephanie online was very flirtatious and very um, sexual and then when stephanie went to australia uh, she pulled back a lot on that and i and erica was kind of confused by that and so i might have said you know maybe stephanie is on the asexual or aromantic aromantic uh spectrum who knows i, I there was no indication of that in the show um, by any means but um it's just a it was probably just the musing that I had, and a little bit about asexuality and aromanticism. Everyone is on a spectrum. Lots. Uh, some people have a, a lot of need for romantic attachment, and some people have little to no need for romantic attachment. Some people have a lot of needs for sexuality and sexual interactions, and sexual you know merging with other people. Some people have little to no need for sexual interactions, and there are many people in between. Uh, it was assumed due to cultural notions that everyone had a need for romance, romantic attachment, meaning, you know, spousal love, and everyone had a need for sexual interactions. When we actually look at the research when we actually study individuals and talk to them, we realize that there are a sizable percentage of people who either notice for themselves or it's identified for them that they – Either have a very low need for romance or sex, or no need for romantics or sex, and some people have both. Some people are both aromantic, a meaning without. So they're they're some people are both aromantic and asexual, and the temptation in the past and currently is to pathologize them. It's like, well, you you must just have PTSD. That's why you're running away from sex or or relationships, and certainly that can happen for some people. And certainly some people can be identified in a sense falsely as a romantic or asexual because of past traumas. Um, but lots of people have not been traumatized or we've realized through a lot of exploration that the, the person is just, uh, you could say, born without the need for sex or without the need for romance. And that's fine. There's, You know, we don't need to pathologize that. And so I might have thrown that out there for Stephanie and Erica as a way of explaining Stephanie's uh, seeming lack of need for closeness uh, physically with Erica. But again, uh, it was really hard to tell how much physical intimacy they had. They, they didn't really go into it uh, much beyond the first few episodes or of them meeting. So I don't know. So there's – and I did a whole deep dive on asexuality and to some extent aromanticism that you can listen to. Um, To be clear, what I'm saying here is that research shows and my own anecdotal evidence shows that some people uh, are oriented asexually, meaning that uh, a common experience for asexual people is that at a certain age, often in high school, maybe a little older – they just are completely confused with everyone's obsession with sex. And it just boggles their mind. They're just like, why is everyone so obsessed with sex? And why is everyone so obsessed with being sexy or being sexually appealing? Or, or why is everyone interested in talking about sex? It, it, it's boring to me. Or it's repulsive. Or it's just not something I'm interested in doing. And the same with romantic attachments. Uh, Now, often these individuals will absolutely have attachment needs or uh, intimacy needs in other ways. Like you can be asexual, uh, most asexual people, and every asexual person I've talked to absolutely has needs for friendship, for cuddling, for deep relationships. It's just just, they're just not interested in sex. Or someone who is aromantic – they definitely have a need potentially for sex. They definitely have a need potentially for friendships and cuddling and, and intimacy and, you know, deep, dedicated, secure attachments. But they're just not interested in that romance flavor of close relationships. And as a society, we should just wake up to the fact that that's fine and we don't need to pathologize those people. There's nothing wrong with it. And even if it was just a phase, what's the difference? It's okay to have a phase where that's where you go through. It's it's not a problem. In the same way that being gay is not a problem or bisexual is not a problem or trans is not a problem, being asexual and and aromantic is not a problem. We shouldn't consider it a threat to our society or ourselves. Anyway, let's read another email. All right, this next email is from patron Chergo from South Africa. She writes, my partner does not display attachment styles that fall into any of the four quadrants. He's very affectionate verbally and physically. However, he can sometimes be avoidant, which he manifests as being extremely rude and dismissive of my feelings. An example is that I would say to him, I miss you so much. And he would say something like, find comfort at the bottom of a bottle. These things make me feel like he does not love me. However, he's very expressive about how much he does love me. I have spoken to him about this multiple times in both differentiated and undifferentiated ways, and each time I have been stonewalled by him. Then he will be really kind to me the next day. I have told him he needs to seek therapy, but he says I'm obsessed with you and your channel is brainwashing me. Please advise on what you think this might be so that I can research and convince him to go to therapy. End of email. So the first thing is, is, uh, it's interesting that he thinks that I'm brainwashing you. I find that to be very interesting and hilarious. <laughs> it makes me wonder how many spouses are angry at me in a similar way. Uh, how many spouses out there think that I'm brainwashing people? <laughs> uh, and you know, what I'll say is please be careful about what you're learning. Um, I'm not your therapist, so there's no way of knowing if you're using the information well. If someone, if your spouse hates me, it's possible that you're using what you're learning as a weapon against them. Uh, if they, if, if you're, if you're, if you have a spouse out there that hates me, uh, any listener, then Uh, you know, obviously, whatever you're learning, you're not using right. Because it it, now maybe your spouse is a jerk face, which, you know, is possible. But, um, but usually, if things are going well, your spouse should actually be appreciative. Like, wow, I'm really glad you're watching that channel that uh, it's really improved how you react, Right but if you're using it like i you know on this channel this guy said this and this is why you're this and if you're using it against someone then yeah of course they should hate me because they think i'm giving you ammo against them so just be careful about that and of course you need to go to therapy if you chergo uh, Sher- i don't know the therapy access in your area of south africa but um, you know, you, you need to be going to someone and not using the, the channel. I don't hear that you're in therapy, and so you, you could really benefit from that. Uh, to, but to address the other question here is, um, you know, how do I convince him to go to therapy? You, know, you, you basically are saying, well, if I learn a bunch of information and I could somehow convince him of why he has an insecure attachment style – then I can convince him to go to therapy. I can't imagine that being true. It is nearly impossible to convince someone to go to therapy. I get this question all the time. How do I convince my partner to go to therapy? We would be in a much different world if it was easy to convince people to go to therapy. There would be so much less suffering in the world. (laughs) Imagine if we could convince politicians to go to therapy or um, various people in your personal life, your boss, Uh, This just doesn't happen. Uh, People are either up for it or or they aren't. And I'm not just saying this professionally, but I'm saying this personally. I've gone on campaigns as a therapist to convince people around me that I thought would really benefit from therapy, and they just never went. Or I got them to almost go after three years of going on a campaign, and then they they didn't go. Um, There are exceptions. You know, there are some things that you can potentially do that will convince people to go, but it's very, it's very difficult. And, um, you know, you can throw it out there, you can be okay, you know what, I think I think therapy might help us, I think therapy might help you. Um, but beyond that, you know, it's, it's really hard to uh, convince someone. So your other question here is like, what is he? Is he avoidant? You know, what, what's the deal here? Uh, well, it's impossible for me to know based on your description. Um, there's nothing about your description that jumps out to me as like, oh, I, I'm getting a good sort of sense. There's nothing quintessential about the presentation, which is perhaps why it's hard for you to identify as well. And, you know, uh, oftentimes what I try to tell people is like, well, if someone doesn't fit easily into the avoidant uh, preoccupied, disorganized, uh, secure quadrants, then let's just let go of those quadrants and let's just look at a spectrum between securely attached and insecurely attached. That's all we need, really, and uh, try to gauge like how insecure uh, how how insecure is the person's attachment style. And you give some evidence of insecure attachment, which in, you know encompasses preoccupied, avoidant, and disorganized, in that when you express you're hurt to him in a differentiated manner, he stonewalls you. So that's evidence of insecure attachment, Mean that meaning that it feels threatening to him, it feels like you're going to abandon him, and he doesn't like that, and so he he manages that difficulty by stonewalling you. Now, I don't know. This is based on your description. Uh, I have to tell you, based on the way you're writing, there's just thousands of possibilities as to what's going on could be, uh, you know, you, you could be definitely a part of the equation. He could be, there's just a lot there. Um, but, uh, to answer your question at the end, you know, please advise on what you think this might be. I I don't know based on what you're saying. Um, but we can not say that there's a problem. Uh, what I can say is that the two of you have issues with attachment and the two of you have issues with communication. The two of you have issues with conflict resolution and that is best served by a therapist. And, you you know, couples therapy is a wonderful thing. And given the pandemic, a lot of people are opening themselves up to online therapy. And so, you know, I'd definitely try to find that for yourself. All right, let's go into another email here. Sorry that that's not very satisfying for because I basically just said, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry about that. All right, this next email is from patron Paul. He writes, I have a majorly preoccupied attachment style. I have a core wound in that I'm subconsciously absolutely convinced that I'm unworthy of love. I'm a massive people pleaser. This has pushed me into a burnout and a depression the last few years, which I've had therapy for. Now online, when uh, it comes to these kinds of symptoms, you read on one hand about oh, So online, when you read about these kinds of symptoms... You read, on one hand, about trauma therapy, and on the other hand, about healing core wounds. Is a core wound the same as a trauma? Is trauma therapy the way I should go? Or is there another type of therapy that would heal core wounds? End of email. There's a lot to say. In some ways, I would have to go back to the history of our field going back 150 years to talk about core wounds and what makes therapy work, and the different languages that we use as therapists and on the internet and attachment style. But let me just give you a brief rundown of the language that I use that is kind of common, but definitely not universal. So let's talk about the word trauma. It I use it in two different ways, and the literature often does as well. One is uh, the common PTSD type, the post-traumatic stress disorder type, and this is You're at war, and you see someone die. You're in a car accident. You are assaulted on the street, and that's a trauma. You are in utter terror, and afterwards, you have post-traumatic stress. You have stress that is well after the fact that the trauma occurred, and there's a lot of uh, uh, symptoms around that. You know, hypervigilance, startle response, um, depression, anxiety, these kinds of things, nightmares. So that is one use of the of the word trauma. The other use is really quite different and this is a relational type of a relational type of trauma. This is abuse, neglect or just attachment injury, really. It can include terror, like you could be terrorized by your grandfather, someone that you were very close to. But it's more broad than that. It could also include moments of attachment injury where you just felt like you were left alone. Now, there can be elements of fear, but not like what we're talking about when we're talking about PTSD. When people suffer from PTSD, their body went through a very shocking terror moment when they – you know, it, and this is something that's often misunderstood even among clinicians – is that people will – look towards like, well, that person, uh, you know, they have PTSD symptoms, but they didn't go through a trauma, you know, and I'll ask, well, what do you mean? Well, well, you know, they didn't go to war, and they weren't assaulted, and they don't, they don't really remember any kind of trauma. And I'll be like, well, you know, what was their family like growing up? And they're like, well, you know, they had a pretty bad family, their parents were addicted to drugs, and uh, their parents went to prison for a bit, and they went into foster care. And uh, uh, so according to the first definition of trauma, that person has not been through a trauma, they weren't dropped off of a, you know, roof, they weren't shot at, they weren't almost killed, they didn't see someone die. But they were absolutely ongoing, going through a, a fear uh, space. And that ongoing fear of not knowing where you're going to end up, not knowing who these people are not knowing where your parents are, being separated, uh, that's uh, also a trauma that can re- result in PTSD. Anyway, point is, is that there's a lot of different usages of the term trauma. So when you look online, by the way, which I do not recommend, uh, there are some things in our world that you could go online, like if you want to find out Kirk Cameron's birthday, the Internet is probably reliable. Uh, when it comes to psychology – definitely not reliable, but can be reliable. When we're talking about therapy, we're talking about 99.9% uselessness is what the Internet is. And that's why a lot of people listen to this podcast because they're just like, you know, you can't get this information anywhere else. I don't know why people don't talk about it enough or it's confusing. Who knows? But, yeah, going online and saying, you know, I have a core wound. What kind of therapy should I get? Uh, that uh, I just can't imagine the internet being very helpful there. So so the question that you have, patron Paul, is what type of therapy should I get? You know, I'm a people pleaser. Um, so you write that you want to heal from your core wound that taught you that you were unworthy of love. So at some point, as a child or throughout your childhood, you were wounded, attachment injury or relationally wounded. And it taught you that You are unworthy of love. Something happened ongoing that was that reality. And now you're living the consequence of that. Well, I recommend seeking therapy with someone that specializes in that. And I wouldn't go for the terms because if you, you were like, okay, should I look for core wound therapy? Should I look for trauma therapy? The problem is if you look for those words, you might miss the mark. The thing that you should do is maybe look for those words, but then call them up and just say, so, uh. I have this problem, and I need help with this. And how how could you how would you help me with this? How, how, would, how do you generally help people with a problem like this? And you should be able to get a pretty good answer to that. If someone answers it in a very confusing way that you don't understand, if someone is kind of offended that you're even questioning them, uh, then I would steer clear of them. Because uh, someone who specializes in the work that you're looking for should be able to answer the question sufficiently and in a in layperson's terms. And so I, I would seek that out. And this really just goes for everyone. Uh, the, the reason why you should really just ask what you want instead of looking for terms is because in my field, people use terms very haphazardly, like someone will say, I, I specialize in trauma. And that can mean anything from what I would call yes, they absolutely do specialize in trauma. Even you know, uh, they understand PTSD, they understand trauma, they understand the physiology of trauma, they understand all the different manifestation, uh, manifestations of dis- dissociation, they understand exposure therapy, you know, EMDR, these kinds of things. They understand the research, they understand how to ground you, they understand how to monitor you, they understand that you are at risk of re-traumatizing yourself if you dive headfirst into the trauma narrative, they, they understand it forwards and backwards. And so someone online says, I specialize in trauma. It could be like that. That's like me. I specialize in trauma, and you know, I've done a lot of training and a lot of supervision and a lot of treatment of people learning firsthand how to treat trauma. It's a very specialized thing. The person next door could also say, I specialize in trauma, and they have no idea what trauma really is. They've, they went to graduate school. There was a week on PTSD, and they had a lecture, and they might have even written a paper about PTSD, but they do not understand how to treat PTSD. They think they understand, but they do not understand. And this is a problem in our field, just a massive problem. <laughs> Uh, it's it's not as prevalent in other kinds of clinical fields. Like a physician who says that they specialize in cancer, you're not often going to find that that person has no idea how to treat cancer. You will find the occasional physician who doesn't understand how to treat cancer that says they specialize in cancer. But you're going to find a lot of therapists who say they specialize in trauma, and they have no idea what they're doing. And Full disclosure, I was one of those people in the beginning. I don't know if I said I specialized in trauma, but I definitely took clients who suffered from trauma, and I did not yet understand how to treat trauma. Trauma is very, very difficult to learn how to treat. It takes a long time. It's very complicated. And one of the problems is that in graduate school, we don't really emphasize that enough. We say, okay, you're graduated. You can treat trauma now. Instead of saying, look, we don't have enough time to teach you about trauma therapy and so and about trauma in general. So you need to get extra supervision and extra training before you are competent enough to treat trauma. We don't do that enough. Um, I do that as a professor. And I also spend a lot of time with my supervisees tra- tra- uh, training them on how to understand trauma. And then – even then, I, I say to them, look, you're not ready to do this on your own. You have to, uh, it's the same with any kind of personality disorder. It's the same with autism. It's the same with ADHD. It's the same with bipolar. There, are, These things are, or eating disorders, for example, these topics, addiction, these topics are very complicated. And graduate school is not enough. <laughs> and there are a lot of people out there that uh, you want to steer clear of. And so Uh, What you want to do is you just want to call someone up and you just want to say, you know, I want to heal from my core wound. And I have a core wound that results in me being a people pleaser, and me believing that I'm unworthy of love. Uh, On your website, it says that you, uh, you know, focus on traumas, you focus on core wounds. Uh, how could you help me now there's a lot of different ways that you could be helped you could be helped in a psychodynamic interpersonal way you could be helped in a relational way you could be helped in an attachment way you could be helped in a trauma way an exposure way a emdr way you could be helped in a cognitive therapy way or a narrative therapy way there's a lot of different therapies out there that can help with that because it's really a common thing that people come into therapy with all right let's go on to the next email All right, this next email is from patron Sasha from Holland. She writes, My sister-in-law has a five-month-old baby boy. I heard her say that he is almost at the age that she can allow him to cry it out and self-soothe. In one of your podcasts about attachment styles, you discourage this practice at such a young age. How should I bring it up without offending her? End of email. Yeah, uh, so in the previous... Part uh, you know part one of this series, uh, I talked about this a bit about uh, this um, idea of uh, when do you ask children to uh, soothe themselves, to sleep alone, to uh, be separated from their parents for daycare or preschool or kindergarten or something and you know what I said in that uh, segment was... Parenting is complicated. They're, every kid is different. Uh, there's a lot of other things at play. Uh, no kid enjoys being separated from their parents, really, and, and you know, in the best of situations. They don't want to be separated. I'd worry about a kid who didn't get upset when they were separated from their parents, honestly. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of variance here. And some kids, you know, just their disposition is such that they – you put them down to bed when they're at five months old in the crib and they sleep for four hours, six hours and they wake up and they scream and you go in there and you get them. And other kids, no dice. There's no way that at five or six months they're going to sleep in the in a room by themselves. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and there are a lot of kids in between. Kids will phase in and out of differences. And, and how do you know what to do? Because at some point you're going to, run into that situation where you've got to displease your child and and disappoint them and make them upset when do you do that well generally speaking five months is too young Uh, not always of course but uh, generally speaking it's too young and it's not surprising that there are people who will adhere to this notion of like okay five months time time to put them in a crib in their own room i'll let them cry it out and i'm going to I'm going to help them learn how to self-soothe, as they say. Now, again, I want to say that you could do this and not damage the kid. As I said in the uh, other episode, it all comes down to how the kid experiences it. And so you just have to, you know, take it case-by-case basis and really be attuned to the child. Does does the child experience undue distress as a result of uh, you transitioning them to their own bed or to a consistent bedtime or whatever it is that you're trying to adjust them to. Um, some kids will adjust real fast. Some kids won't. Uh, some kids are very good at communicating to you that they're in distress. Some kids aren't, so you really have to pay attention. It really just depends on the kid. The key is is that there is a age-appropriate amount of distress. That's always the key that people fail to recognize, that it's not about, okay, the kid is 12 months, now I do this, it, that's a good guideline to consider, you know, to have well, – normally kids at this age, they start walking, or normally kids at this age sleep by themselves. But that's just a general guideline. What you should be doing is how, how much distress is this child experiencing? And that's where the attunement comes in. You, you're very aware of that. If you have a two-year-old who is experiencing extreme distress by being made to sleep in a room by themselves – even though all the other kids in your neighborhood at two are sleeping on their own, do not proceed. <laughs> your kid is in so much distress. Now, there are other you know ways of helping the kid adjust. It's not like you just give up and, and the kid sleeps in your bed all the time. It, it's just a matter of like, okay, hmm, you know this kid seems to be in a lot of distress about this. Uh, what is the distress about? How do we help the kid with transition? How do we help the kid understand that we'll we'll, we'll definitely be right outside the door if they need us? How do we say that to the kid, okay, you know what? Let's set a date on the calendar and we'll tick it away for three months. And at the end of that time, then uh, we'll uh, let you sleep by yourself. But we'll do this for three months. or whatever the system is. There's a lot of different ways. But all the while, you're you're, you're taking note of how distressed the child is because the point is, is that. Attachment is facilitated when you're young and and throughout your life through emotions. So when you are in distress as a human being, particularly when you're young, you reach out to others, you know, you scream and you, you're trying to get your loved ones to come to you. The, the, your loved ones, they can't take away the reality, but they can soothe you because we are social creatures. And so, If the kid is in tremendous distress for whatever reason, you want to go to them and you want to help. You want to be there with them. Now, of course, you can teach them how to self-soothe. Absolutely. But if they don't learn that right away, you know, then you have to soothe them. That's, That's what families do. And if you don't have time, then get a village. Get aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins and friends and spouses and get everyone involved so that the kid is responded to quickly enough when the kid is in distress. And because when a child has undue distress beyond a certain threshold, and they are not responded to in an attunement manner, in an attuned manner, then they have to figure out a way to cope with that. And this is when children Will start to develop insecure attachment styles and personality disorders and other issues. If, for example, a child is left alone and feels left alone, that's the point. Is like it's a matter about how they how they feel about it. Uh, you know, say there's a kid who just really is clingy just from the day they're born, then a normal parenting style with them will cause that child to just feel very neglected. And so the kid has to figure out a way to cope with that. And one of the ways that some kids will cope with that is through narcissism. They will say, you know what? I give up on other people and other people are terrible. I'm awesome because I need to believe I'm awesome. Otherwise I have to recognize that I'm worthless. And so I'm going to believe I'm awesome and I'm going to, you know, rule the world and become a fascist. Uh, That happens. So uh, we do not want to put a child into a situation where they have to defend on their own, where they have to figure out a maladaptive coping to deal with the high level of distress they have. Now, I know this doesn't necessarily make any parent feel better because it's like, well, how am I supposed to know how? Well, it, you take the time you know, to just get to know and you take your best guess and you muddle through it and you'll screw things up. As I always say, the best you can wish for is that your parenting only damages your kid enough so that your kid only needs 5 years of therapy instead of 20. And I'm not joking when I say that. I'm being it's a jokey way of saying it but it's absolutely true. The the best a parent can do is the child only needs 5 years of therapy after, you know, becoming an adult. Every parent messes up their kid. So, uh, because being being a kid is is stressful. <laughs> You're on your own and and there's going to be bad moments, and you're going to feel like your parents let you down. So uh, so you muddle through it, you do your best, but you're you're monitoring the child's distress. That's the key. It's not, uh, is this child old enough to do cry it out? It, it's, uh, am I responding enough to reduce the child's distress? That's the key. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, I've been listening to your episodes on enmeshment, and there is something I can't really figure out. My husband, my husband's family, has always felt kind of suffocating to me, and I thought what I felt was enmeshment. But his parents have always been emotionally emotionally neglectful. How does this fit into the emotion, enmeshment picture? They are kind of disengaged, I guess. But the authoritarian way of the parents seems to create something that feels like enmeshment to me. There are rituals like coffee drinking together after dinner, sitting at a table talking about nonsense things, etc., that we are expected to be a part of that feels suffocating to me and feel like enmeshment, but they also feel disengaged and distant. End of email. All right. So let's review enmeshment, disengagement versus healthy. So, uh, and healthy, we also might say flexible or optimal or responsive, and these are three categories. Uh, so can we reduce all the families across the planet and in, in across history and across cultures to three different categories? Probably not very easily. Some families are going to fit very neatly into the enmeshment category. Some are going to fit neatly into the disengagement category. And some are going to fit neatly into the healthy, flexible, optimal, responsive category. And some families will not. But again, as with attachment style, let's look at what kind of, this is essentially a family style. It's a habit that the family develops over time to create as much closeness as possible, but also reduce conflict. All family systems and all relationships, frankly, are in a constant monitorization, monitor, <laughs> monitoring of how can we be as close as we possibly can, but also reduce conflict. The chance of conflict. How can I be? How can I be so close that I can get my needs met and possibly meet the needs of my family members, but not get so close that we end up getting into fights and disappointing each other? So we're trying to increase closeness, and we're trying to decrease conflict. And sometimes the closer we get, the more conflict we get, or the more uh, distance we get the less conflict we get, but the less closeness we get. So we're in this constant uh, battle trying to figure that out. Now, over time, families will develop a style, whether it's enmeshment, disengagement, or healthy, or a mixture, or dependent on the situation. In the same way with attachment style. We'll develop a style of a way of trying to manage our attachments. We're trying to get close to people, and we're trying to reduce the chance of being hurt by people. So some families can be categorized as enmeshed, they have decided that it's best to downplay individuality uh, to get closeness. They're trying to increase the guilt trips to increase conformity because they, they have a, a, an unspoken rule that conformity equals less conflict and that lack of conformity and individuality will lead to conflict. They will have a belief that invading other people's lives is uh, better than providing privacy. Because privacy is a risk to closeness, and so you want to get rid of privacy. Um, and that control often will be favored over autonomy. Now, I'm making it sound awful, but it, you know, there's pros and cons to being enmeshed. Now, the best is to be healthy and flexible, which I'll describe now, which is you're flexible to the situation, Uh, You can be very close, and you can be very distant. It just depends on what the individual needs are and what the needs of the the system is. And people listen to each other. They they notice each other's needs, and they will adjust. They're, They're assertive and caring towards each other, and they are flexible. Now, these healthy families might look very enmeshed from the outside. They might also look very disengaged. It, it, it doesn't, you know, healthy families don't look a particular way. They're just uh, appropriately responsive given the situation. Uh, for example, you might have a family where the family members have families of their own and, uh, you know, social lives of their own. And thus there's not a lot of con- contact between the family members because they don't need each other anymore or whatever. Uh, so you can't just look at a family and say, ooh, you know, that's enmeshed, that's disengaged, that's healthy. It's, it's just hard to tell from the outside. You ha- actually have to find out from the individuals. You know, another thing is, it's like a family might look enmeshed to you, uh, but when you actually ask them about whether or not they feel like they have the ability to break from the enmeshment, and you find that they absolutely do have the power to break from the enmeshment, and thus, they're not enmeshed. Uh, enmeshment gives a very clear message to people that they will be punished if they break from the conformity of, of the family. So, And we love as a society to judge this. You know, when, when I watch the TV show Smothered, some of you have watched my reaction videos on YouTube about that TV show. So, uh, it's on this premise of these mothers that are uh, over-involved in their adult daughters' lives. And it's called Smothered, and it's like Mother Who Was Smothering. And the show has a lot of problems with it. Uh, it you know, it just looks at – it just sensationalizes – I don't know. They're just trying to get people to react. But the some of the uh, mother-daughter combos on the show, uh, they're just really close, and they're just kind of weird. <laughs> and they just kind of – they do things that you wouldn't do in your family. Like there's this one mother-daughter combo where – They dress in very skimpy clothing and they go to Vegas. And so it's played up for, oh, my God, look at They're so enmeshed. They have this very pathological relationship. No. For a grown woman to go with another grown woman, now, albeit it's mother-daughter, but it's a grown daughter. She's like 25 years old or I don't know how old she is, but, you know, she's old. And they are deciding to go to Vegas together. Now, for you, you might consider that to be low class or disgusting or weird or just plain. You know, you would never do that with your mom. You you don't want to go to Vegas with your mom and watch your mom make out with some dude in the corner. That to you is disgusting. It's a some sort of taboo that you just don't like. And fine. Absolutely. In your life, go for it. But other people can have a different sort of lifestyle. And just because something is culturally odd to us does not mean that it is pathological at all. I think we should all understand that. In the 90s and prior, it was absolutely considered pathological for people to be gay or trans because it felt weird to people. So we all understand that just because something feels weird or is culturally odd does not mean it's pathological. Now, if we investigated this family and the daughter felt like, well, Yeah, I don't really want to watch my mom make out with some guy at Vegas. I really don't want to go to Vegas with my mom. I'd rather do things on my own. But I know that my mom kind of needs me, and uh, I know that my mom would be very, very hurt if I didn't go with her. And she doesn't really have any other friends, and so I kind of have to do this, and I don't really want to. And she gets kind of upset when I imply that I don't want to do it. Okay, now we're talking about control, inflexibility, lack of attunement to other people, to her feelings, the daughter's feelings, uh, force, control, you know, bad things. But you can't just look at a family and determine that. All right, so disengaged families, they have decided, uh, an unspoken rule, that it's best to live and let live. That, you know, we can be close, but, you know, we probably should not get too close because something bad could happen. You know, uh, if we depend on each other too much, we might let each other down. So you know what? It's just better if you do your thing and I do my thing. And we have our pleasant interactions for sure, but we're not going to get too close because bad things can happen. Okay. So that's enmeshed, disengaged, and healthy. And there are families that have mixtures of that. Because again, the point is, is that every family, regardless of what word we put to it, every family has a way of managing closeness, And conflict, closeness. And how do you get as close as possible? And how do you avoid conflict? Every family has a level of closeness, whether it's very low closeness or very high. And every family has a level of conflict frequency and intensity, whether it's very low or very high. So every family is trying to deal with that. And again, some families will go in the direction of enmeshment. And some families will go in the direction of disengagement, some families will go in the direction of healthy and flexible and responsive, and some families will have a mixture depending on the situation. Okay, so let's look at your husband's family. You say that uh, the parents were neglectful. Now often neglect is associated with disengaged families, but no, neglect is associated with both enmeshed and disengaged, and this is actually a big misunderstanding. To some people, enmeshed sounds like it's actually close. It's not. Healthy is actually close. Enmeshed, they look close and they act close, but they're not actually close. Uh, you don't feel close to someone when you have to conform to some other version of yourself to, to get closeness, Right. So neglect, if, you know, if someone said, you know what, I felt emotionally neglected as I grew up, you won't know if that's enmeshed or disengaged. It likely means disengaged, but it's hard to know. You also write that they seem disengaged. Okay, so I'll just take your word for it. You also say that the parents are authoritarian. And to you, this seems enmeshed to you. Well, so let me go into a a subtype of disengaged families that They can buy, you know, they're trying to get close, but they're worried about getting too close. And remember, I said that enmeshed families tend to want conformity. Well, some disengaged families will also want conformity because they believe if we all follow these certain rules, we can get close. And if we follow certain rituals. So you say a little bit about this in your email, but if I was to just speculate or expand into things that I've seen, is you have a family where there are very uh, clear ritualized, uh, you know, rituals where when the family gets together, as you said, they all sit around that table and talk about nothing and drink coffee. After dinner, they always stick around and there's sort of a routine to it. Now, this could be a healthy thing, it could be an enmeshed thing, but if it feels to you as an outsider like, I feel like we're not really being vulnerable with each other, but I also feel like there's an importance to us following this thing, and it doesn't feel quite right to me. There's there's something kind of off to me about this behavior. You know, I'm watching my husband. I'm looking at my in-laws. It just feels kind of off to me, and it doesn't feel flexible. It doesn't feel like they're really being truthful or loose with each other. Well, it could be that this is their way that they developed long ago that is a surefire way to get some closeness and that the family believes that this is as best as it's going to get. And to not have the ritual means to not even get a little bit of closeness. And so everyone has agreed, well, we might as well do at least a little bit of closeness and do this ritual Otherwise, we're not going to get any kind of closeness because we know through experience that if we don't have this, then we have nothing because we don't really reach out to each other. We don't really are. We're not really vulnerable with each other. We don't inquire about each other. And so this is our thing. This is how we get it. Now, does this mean it's pathological? No, absolutely not. There's no way to know. You'd have to ask everyone and say uh, and, and get an honest exploration statement from them around. You know, would you like it to be any different? And if you did, can your family be responsive to you in this way? Um, And those are very complicated questions that require a fair amount of explanation. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this email is from patron Mike. He writes, I and many other people I know experience a loss of attraction the more the person we are seeing is interested in us. Chasing a romantic partner seems to be much more exciting and generates more sexual attraction than being in a consistent sexual relationship with that person. I do not think it takes someone at a doctoral level to tell me that new things are, in general, more exciting and novel, but I am struggling to understand this through the lens of attachment theory. If we are with someone who is stable, reciprocates affection, and often wants to initiate sex, why are we repulsed? We meaning him and his friends. I almost feel the urge to roll my eyes when my current partner tries to be intimate with me. And I know many other people who feel the same way. Diving into my family of origin, I was pursuing affection from my busy single mother early in life. Then turned resentful and introverted as I got older and avoided interactions with her. I could see this making sense that I developed a working model of getting affection from other people that as something that didn't happen easily. So when that comes naturally, I see it through a distorted perspective. End of email. Yeah. Uh, First off, I commend your self-awareness. That's great. And yes, the beginning is always more exciting, at least for most people. We seem to have evolved that way. It facilitates coupling that in order to uh, galvanize our attention, in order to make us motivated to go through all the trouble of coupling with someone new we have a lot of uh, systems in our bodies that will facilitate infatuation and motivation and attraction and animal magnetism and so the chase quote-unquote at the beginning is often going to be very exciting compared to other times of your life uh, with that person Uh, For example, most couples can remember the first few dates that they went on, but they can't remember the dates that the, you know, the 150th date, most people can remember the first date, but they're not going to necessarily remember the 150th date. Now there are other factors in terms of why someone would remember that. But I think all of us can agree that in the beginning, it's much more alive and much more, you know, just, you think about it all the time and then, you know, 15 years into the relationship you're probably not thinking about your spouse uh as much or in that way it you know it morphs into something else, something deeper or something um less f- fiery or something more more uh you know whatever The point is is that um it seems to be a evolutionary thing, and that is related to attachment theory that we attach in that way. Now, there's a lot to say uh, because you say, you know, I I love to chase. And then almost universally, me and my friends, as soon as we catch someone, then it's over. I'm repulsed by them. Okay, there's a lot of different uh, possibilities to think about. I'll I'll mention three to explore in therapy. Number one is you haven't chased the right one yet. Um, Sure, you could be, you could have a crush and you could be interested in someone. and You could chase someone and be very attracted to them and very interested in them. And then you catch them and you realize them because you get to know them and you're like, oh, this is not the one for me and I don't like them anymore. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, when you're chasing someone, you might not know them well enough yet. And, and you know, you actually get involved with them. Then you get to know them and you're like, hmm, actually, I don't want to be with them anymore because I didn't know this about them. That kind of thing. Number two is, as you say, in your family of origin, your issues with your mother are potentially distorting things for you that uh, you are still very resentful of your mom and scared of attachments and so when you get close you want to run away Um, which leads me to the third thing which is that closeness for whatever reason whether it's related to your mom or not might be very scary to you and it's easier to run uh, and chase someone else and this is very indicative indicative of avoidant attachment Um, you know in the deep dive on avoidant attachment I believe I talked about this but if I didn't um, one of the profiles, and there are many, of avoidant attachment is someone who bounces from relationship to relationship. You know, The avoidant person needs relationships in the same way that anybody else does. The avoidant person is desperate for closeness like anybody else is, and perhaps more so because they often don't get that need met. Uh, so one solution is to chase uh, people romantically and sexually and get your attachment needs met, say, in the first month. And then at a certain point, when things get a little more complicated and a little bit more uncertain, and you're a little bit more vulnerable, well, now you got to run because now you're too close. Now the person could hurt you. Now uh, they could see the real you. You could see the real them. Uh, you could. There could be some honest-to-goodness dependency between the two. No, no, no. Run, run, run. I learned early in life that that was just not my thing. And and I don't like this feeling, and I don't like this person, and I'm out of here. But I still have these needs, so on to the next chase. That's absolutely a profile of an avoidant person. All right, let's go into another email. All right, this next email is from an anonymous listener. Oh, they're not a patron. They might not ever hear this. Uh, <laughs> well, um, So anonymous listener asks, um, I would like to ask you to talk about adoption specifically adoption of abused children from orphanages and abused children from Eastern European orphanages. Uh, Talk about attachment disorder, sexual abuse, lying, low IQ, and complex PTSD as a result of institutionalization and neglect by one's biological family. Thirteen years ago, uh, my family, uh, we adopted three boys all at once, and our family has been struggling ever since. My, the oldest child committed suicide after being in the U.S. for three years. My youngest child is very troubled, isolated, and having attachment issues due to neglect and abuse he experienced in the orphanage. So many adoptive families need help. End of email. Yeah, this is very, very common. I've talked about this before. Uh, it used to be a specialty of mine in my early career. I didn't expect to to specialize in this, but I got a lot of families with adopted children who had uh, very extreme behaviors. And I learned trial by fire, what uh, attachment theory was Uh, a big portion of my attachment theory learning was by working with these families that had children who had attachment injuries early in life. So as a caveat to what I'm about to say, uh, not all families are like this, like this, not all adopted children have issues like this. Um, But many do. But plenty of Eastern European children who grow up in orphanages come to the States and they do relatively well. So I'm not going to say that all kids are like this cause they're not, but, but many kids are. And so let me explain, or, you know, if if we're going to characterize early life, well, you're going to have children who are in an institution or they're in a foster home with a bunch of other kids or, and or they're with their biological parents who are abusive or, or neglectful, and this results in severe attachment injury and severe attachment problems. And it's neurological; it's always neurological. But I say neurological because I want to emphasize that it is, in a sense, hardwired into their personality uh, during a during some key developmental phases that they that all children go through that they were neglected or abused in a way that those uh, you know, those ships have sailed, you know uh, for example uh, for some kids uh, it seems that they were not given enough love and attention uh, at a certain age such that they will never really have empathy for other people because they were never given a chance to interact enough in a safe way with other people such that, their empathy capacity could grow. Um, So that leads me into uh, the observations that I would see with, again, not all these kids, but a lot of them is massive emotional dysregulation problems because of that neglect emotionally that they were going through early in life. Um, Now I will say just backing up that some institutions and some foster homes can be great for kids. So I'm not saying the institutions and foster homes are automatically bad. It's just that, um, often they are bad because there's not enough staff or the model of taking care of the kids isn't on an attachment uh, theory-oriented business and the kids are perhaps passed from nurse to nurse and there's just not any consistency there for the children. And so, and it depends on the age and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, the point is, is that um, as a result, what I would see in these kids once they were adopted and particularly as they got to like, I don't know, ten years old around there, and particularly when they turn thirteen, then that you know, then the shit really hit the fan. But massive emotional regulation problems, temper tantrums, and then older, you know, they'll get violent, and there'll be some drug abuse to cope. Also, a complete lack of empathy. Uh, people can develop antisocial personality, conduct disorder, um, psychopathy. Lots of lying, lots of stealing, lots of threats of violence, potential violence, running away, legal problems, uh, and lying on the order of just right to your face. Like, most kids will lie about things. People with this kind of attachment injury will, you know, they'll parents will watch the kid do something, and the kid will say, I didn't do that. And you'll say, look, you're grounded for six months unless you admit that you just did the, I saw you do it. The kid will say, I didn't do it. And it's because they, they just don't, because they were passed over at a certain developmental phase of their life, they don't really care about other people's feelings. And the reason why kids don't lie is because they care about your feelings. They don't want to hurt your feelings. They also don't want you to be disappointed in, in them. And so They will avoid lying to you because they don't want you because they know how it makes you feel to be lied to because they've seen you react to it. If at an early stage of life you were neglected and never developed that connection with other human beings, then you don't care about lying because you don't care about other people's feelings. You don't really notice other people's feelings. Uh, now, this doesn't necessarily mean that these people are sadistic. It can result in sadism, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're sadistic. Meaning that they take pleasure in hurting other people. It's just that they just don't have the capacity to notice other people's feelings, even if you tell them. You know, it's almost like a, a developmental delay in a sense. Um, dropping out of school, teen pregnancies, depression, eating disorders, personality disorders, etc. And so, as a parent, this can be extremely Stressful. I worked with dozens, if not hundreds, of families in the situation, and, you know, uh, it's natural to be very, very distressed. And I was there with them. You know, I would go into the home, and I would experience what these parents were experiencing on a, you know, like a 1% basis, and I was just like, oh, my God, if you're dealing with this all the time, my goodness. Very stressful. Often there's no help available to families like this. People will blame the parents, uh, and certainly the parents will self-blame. And uh, usually there's no system in place to really help families like this. Uh, Therapists don't know what to do. Psychiatrists just throw a bunch of pills haphazardly. Um, Social workers that work for the state, um, they're overworked and they don't know what to do. Or they try for a year and then they're just like, look, we've we've done all we try. And the parents are always left alone or I'll say usually left alone in the end and parents adoptive parents are almost never told that this is a possibility because they would never adopt the kid. (laughs) If that was a possibility, I mean for, you know, this um, uh, anonymous listener, if someone told her, Oh, by the way, little look into your future, you're going to adopt these three kids. One of them a few years from now is going to kill themselves in your house. Um, the other two are going to have such severe emotional problems that you're going to question every day why you made this choice to adopt these kids. There's not a lot of parents are going to sign up for that. Some parents still will because they're saints. Uh, But, you know, the saint, the saint parents who adopt anyway, uh, you know, their sainthood only goes so far. And uh, I've actually uh, had friends of mine who have come to me and said, you know, I was thinking about adopting these kids and, Uh, As a therapist, I just wanted to get your opinion on it. And I give them this full rundown. You know, I say, look, you know, what do you know about their early childhood? Well, you know, their parents were heroin addicts, and there there was like some sort of crack house situation. The kids were put into CPS a few times, and then they went into a foster home and another foster home and another foster home. And now they're nine years old, and, and I just feel like it's my obligation to take care of the kid. And I'll say, you know, good for you. God bless you. Uh, you know, if there's a heaven, you're guaranteed a spot. Uh, but uh, understand what you're getting into. You know, I, I've worked with kids like this, and you should know the following. And, I, you know, I tell them the whole thing. And a lot of people are just like, wow, I, I just don't think I want to do that. Now, you could say that's a bad thing for me to do, but I feel like people should know. Now, uh, the problem here is not that we have parents that will not adopt these kids. The problem is, is we don't have a system to help the families get through these moments. That's what we need. Uh, when parents adopt kids from these backgrounds, we should have a whole slew of uh, supports that will help the parents get through those times, helps, uh, you know, Youth workers that come in and take the kids out of the house and, you know, do fun things. I actually did some of that work before I was a therapist. Uh, Therapists who are specialists. Psychiatrists who are specialists and don't throw a bunch of medications at the problem uh, haphazardly. Um, And uh, clinicians like myself who specialize this, who understand that you're not going to fix this. You know, there's no way to fix the developmental damage that is done. You can't take it – one of the very first private practice clients I ever worked with, I worked with for 15 years. So I saw the kid grow up to be like a 30-year-old man. I I met the family when the kid was 15. He was adopted early in life and had all the signs that I just said. Uh, They weren't severe, but they were definitely in that direction. And I saw him at the age of 16, at the age of 20, at the age of 25, the age of 30. And, uh, and I've seen other families like that too. And you really see what the reality is, you know, because at 15, when you lack empathy, that looks a particular way. When you're 30 and you lack empathy, it looks a different way. Um, It, it, it's, it's more benign, but it's also still there um, and experienced by the family. Uh, So, it it requires a specialist that says, you know, we're going to take the long-term uh, approach here and we're not going to change this overnight. We're not going to be able to discipline this away from a child. You can't discipline a, the child's lying because the child literally developmentally does not have empathy for other human beings. They, they in their soul do not notice other humans because they were neglected so much when they were young that lying is so automatic to them and such a an outgrowth of their developmental uh, disability, you might call it, that uh, to discipline it is, is pointless. In fact, the little shred of closeness or connection that the child has with you will be severed. If you try to discipline that away, it's just not possible. It took me months, if not years to convince parents of this, you know, the family that I worked with for 15 years, I was still convincing the parents of what I'm telling you, uh, 15 years later. So, you know, I would say they got like 60% down the road. There's just so much uh, uh, assumptions that parents will have like, well, surely if I love this kid enough, we, I can heal the past. Surely it, you know, there's some magic answer, some perfect parenting approach that will eliminate this behavior in the kids. And I would tell them maybe, and we'll do everything we can, but let's not hold our breath. And in my experience working with other families, there is no answer. We just have to deal with this. In the same way that if a child was blind or a child was you know, moderately autistic, we understand that talk therapy and parenting is not going to erase that. We have to deal with it. This child, uh, in a sense, has a form of brain damage as a result of early childhood neglect. It doesn't mean that they're a worthless human being. It doesn't mean that they can't uh, experience joy and love and relationships because they can. That was the thing that I saw with the kid, you know, 15 to 30, was I saw him develop into a working person, a person, a father, a family man, and he, he lived a good life. Uh, but he had issues that, you know, sustained because of what went through. And the – The wonderful parenting that his adoptive parents gave him uh, mitigated a lot of the damage that had been already done to him before the family ever got him. So uh, it's not worthless, but it is very stressful. And unless the parents have a realistic idea of what is likely to happen – The parents are likely to be, you know, crying themselves to sleep every night and or trying to send the kid back to the state, which happens sometimes, which I don't blame parents for doing. I mean, there are kids who are routinely threatening the parents' lives or the other kids. Imagine you adopt. Imagine you have three kids of your own, you know, biological kids, and then you adopt a kid from somewhere and you know that the kid's, you know, been in a. Orphanage for the first couple of years of their life. And you raise that kid and you give that kid love and you do everything for that kid. And at the age of like 12, that kid is routinely terrorizing your other children, making the other children feel unsafe in their own home, uh, actually stealing from them, lying to them, uh, pushing them down when you're not looking, threatening them with a knife. You don't think you're going to think uh, about you know, sending that kid back to the state to protect your family from that kid. You've done everything you could for that kid. You're going to think, um, I don't think this is worth it. Cause, and you've gone to therapy and you've gone to the social workers and nothing has worked. Uh, you're probably going to say to yourself, huh, uh, is there like an institution I can send this kid? Um, it happens. And it's rational to think that. And they were already a saint for adopting the kid in the first place so now i would never recommend that to families but i understood it you know i was never asked to validate it really but over time because at first i was like how how do you give a kid back to the state how do you know you adopted the kid now you're abandoning the kid how dare you and then i experienced what it was like to actually be with these children in the home and it was like whoa (laughs) this is intense and a lot of times for these parents you know when your kid acts out and lies to you or does bad things, it's usually offset by warmth and empathy and love and fun and joy and watching your kid have a good life and you know connection with your child. Well, with some of these kids who are adopted, you don't get much of that, if any of that. And so there's nothing to offset the negativity. And so you're just left with a lot of negativity And no positivity. And the child is saying, I don't want to live with you. I hate you. Uh, I think you're a terrible person. Get out of my way. Uh, I hate you. I I wish you never adopted me. I hate everything about this family. I'm going to kill everyone in this family. Leave me alone. You get that for five years. You think you're not going to think, um, maybe let the kid go back somewhere else. Take the kid anywhere other than here. It happens. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying I get it. And... Again, not all adopted kids. Um, plenty of kids who are adopted are fine. And, you know, uh, it it all depends on, one, uh, how old was the kid when you adopted them? Because if you adopt them close to birth, then, you know, they're not likely to be damaged, right? Unless you damage them. <laughs> um, but not on the level of what some of these orphanages or what, um, uh, you know, heavily abusive or neglectful parents will do. So there's that. The other is just how the kid um, managed while before they got to you. So one thing that you know, some what happens sometimes is you say you have like uh, it's often drug addicted parents. By the way, I don't know about other countries. I think it's true in other countries too. But in the United States, it's often drug addicted parents, parents suffering from trauma, and they use drugs to and substances to cope with that because we have a system that lets them down. By the way, Um, and so the kids uh it, let's say they had grandparents who were there enough or an aunt who was there enough well that can um mitigate a lot of the in, you know attachment injury that can happen to a young child like that by the way that that leads me to a broader uh, point here which is that um you know we don't want to reject these children obviously these children deserve someone to take care of them so we should uh have adoptive parents, but we should also support those adoptive parents with specialists that know the deal and a lot of support. And frankly, maybe a lot of money so the parents don't have to work, (laughs) honestly. Um, Anyway, so we should do that. The other thing is, the bigger picture is, we need to stop having kids go through this so that they need to be adopted in the first place. Okay, how do we do that? Well, we need to, you know, why do kids go through this? Like I said, usually because of extreme poverty, and or drug abuse, which is usually a result of trauma that is untreated, and a a mental health care system that doesn't uh, either provide access or just provides bad treatment for people. And so we could, uh, by starting from the beginning, eliminate the need for the adoptee for the adoptions to take place in the first place. Um, Obviously, not all adoptions, but many of these that end up where the kids are left in institutions and, or passed around from foster care, uh, this sort of thing. So we can solve this problem. Uh, I just want to say that, you know, like when you hear stuff about ending the virus and the pandemic, if we all work together, we can we can put an end to it. You know, if we all wear masks and we all social distance and we all do what we can, we can we can lower the infection rate. And, uh, you know, other societies have done it. Other societies, everyone complies and they do what they're supposed to do they they pay the price for a couple of months and then you know they can go back to normal uh we can end this problem of kids being extremely abused and neglected obviously not all but a a, a lot of kids if we just put our minds to it as a world society but we're not going to do that because no one cares <laughs> uh Oh, I'm just reminded of all the families I worked with and all those kids and just how much pain everyone was going through and and obviously how much pain the kids had gone through before they even met, you know, their adoptive family before they ever met me. And it's continuing to happen today and it's depressing me right now. (laughs) I'm laughing because I don't know what else to do. Um. Let's well, let's take the long game and let's vote. Let's raise awareness. Let's donate to charities. (laughs) Let's enter the field. And, you know, if you're interested in this work, become specialists in adoption and attachment, uh, severe attachment problems early in life. Um, If you're a social worker or a family member, if you have a family member who adopted you know, some kids that like this, you know, do what you can to to help, you know, it, so we can all do those things. All right. Let's go to another email. All right. This next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes in and says that she has a current boyfriend and she's very clingy. I'm just sort of summarizing here. She said that she was very needy as a young child. And then in her a certain point, she became very uh, distant from other people. And now with her current boyfriend, she's very clingy. Her mom was very unexpressive, and her father was explosive and unpredictable. And as a result, she's very aware of the surroundings, of her surroundings and people's needs around her. And so she's trying to figure out, she's like, well, I feel like I'm preoccupied, but I had this period of time where I was very avoidant. And so I don't know which one I am. Uh, As I always say, um, trying to categorize all human beings into four categories is impossible. And it's more useful to think about one's style as a general uh, guideline that you follow, but not a universal thing that you do. And the key to understanding our attachment is to notice when you want to get close, what do you do? When you feel hurt and you're worried about being rejected, what do you do? That's all an attachment style is. When you want closeness, when you feel the need for closeness, what do you do? When you feel worried that someone's going to reject you, or you feel that kind of distance, or you feel hurt by someone close to you, what do you do? Do you avoid? Do you run away? Do you criticize them in your mind and say you're better than them? Do you lean in and say, uh, hey, just want to let you know that uh, what you did hurt my feelings. I don't know if it's my fault. Do you yell at them? Do you try to control them? Do you hit them? Do you drink alcohol? Do you turn to sex? Do you um, triangulate other people? Do you beat yourself up? You know, that's more important than what label of avoiding or preoccupied we put to ourselves. All right, let's go into another email. All right, this next email is from Robin from California. She writes... What effect does growing up with a chronically ill parent have on, one's on, on a child's development as well as their attachments later in life? My mother had rheumatoid arthritis and passed away when I was 20. She loved me very much, and I had a great childhood from my perspective, but I do have a lot of attachment issues as an adult. I'm wondering if it stems from her being too physically ill to, constant, to consistently address my needs for affection. In many instances, I had to take on the role of a caregiver from the age of three or four years old, and continue to do so until her passing. As a 33-year-old, I'm ne- I'm only now starting to realize the impact it had on me. End of email. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, there's a lot of possibilities here. Uh, one is is that you were being neglected, just by the nature of the situation, and developed a attachment issue because of that. Now, we wouldn't blame your mom, right? She probably did. She was probably a saint. She probably, you know, did a lot of wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things given the circumstances. But the net result of the equation is you were neglected. You were in the role of caregiver at the age of three. Now, maybe that was the only option. But Again, this points to people out there. you got to support each other's families. You know, if your family member is suffering, like, you know, reach out to them. You know, don't rely – don't make them force their three-year-old child to take care of them. You know, that that kind of – anyway, we also need systems and uh, social workers and, you know, community systems in place to help people like this. Anyway, um, but, yeah, I've seen this a lot. So uh, – you could have a chronically ill parent. You could have a depressed parent. And you your narrative, which is accurate, is that your parent was a wonderful person and very loving and persevered, and, and you really enjoyed that relationship. But because of the deficits that uh, were in their parenting as a result of their issues, uh, there are you know issues that you now suffer from. And one of the issues here... <laughs> If I could say issue again, is that a lot of times when you know you're in a situation like this, you look back and you you idolize your mom. You know your mom persevered. You loved her. You miss her. She died. Um, you took care of her. She was a lovely person. And it's a terrible thing to think that you would blame her for anything, right? I mean, she was a wonderful person. She she did everything she could. Why and how could you blame her for um, not being there all the time? You know, she was really struggling. Okay. So what this does is it denies the child or the adult child the opportunity to recognize the truth of the matter, which is that they were neglected. Now, again, it's not the mom's fault, but that the child deserves and the adult child deserves to say, you know what? I deserved more and I didn't get it. And I'm not going to blame my mom, but I went through that. Uh, It's the same if you have like a refugee family. A family is forced to flee from their community for political strife or war or uh, climate change or famine. And the parents are lovely people and are caring and love their children and do everything for their kid. Uh, These parents... Would might even be sacrificing their lives. You know, they give all the food to the children. These parents are beautiful, wonderful people. And as a result of being a refugee, the parents do not have the capacity to attend to the children's attachment needs in a way that should be happening to those kids. And thus the kids grow up with issues. We see this in whole communities. There are whole communities who suffer. From increased rates of suicide, increased rates, inc- increased rates of uh, drug addiction and alcoholism, in- increased rates of school dropout and teen pregnancy and violence and crime uh, as a result, partially due to the, uh, you know, uh, due to a government or a, a dominant group of people oppressing another group of people. You know, we can look to throughout history and see this. Um, I've worked with a lot of Jewish people who, when you look back a couple of generations, you see uh, a tremendous, tremendous trauma and, and suffering. Um, so many people dying, uh, refugee status, complete poverty, survive, you know, moving to a to you know, getting away from Nazi Germany and coming to Canada and uh, existing in another anti-Semitic community, um, albeit not as bad as Nazi Germany, but definitely not ideal. And that is going to put stress on an entire group of people, and thus the kids are going to suffer because the parents do not have the capacity to give the kids everything that they need to give. And then those kids grow up with issues, and then those kids have issues that affect their parenting and then the grandkids grow up with issues and this gets passed down from generation to generation not all jewish families i <laughs> just want to point it out but it, it you see these patterns you know when you enslave an entire race of people and you separate all of them and you don't let them raise their kids usually then all the children of that race in that area are going to have massive attachment problems. They're going to couple and have children and their parenting is going to have big deficits given the fact that they were forcefully separated from their parents when they were young and forced into labor at the age of eight Mm -hmm. and perhaps abused throughout their lives. And so they are going to have some parenting issues. They're going to have some issues connecting to their children. And those... Uh, experiences just get passed down from generation to generation and you fast forward to 2020 and you see effects very noticeable scientifically empirically you know uh, observed effects but instead of seeing it that way as a society we're like well that race of people there's lesser they lack morals they lack they lack willpower no Uh, they have uh, institutionalized trauma and historical trauma generational trauma that has been passed down to generations. Whereas other groups of people have had a cush generational life going back and or at least have not been challenged to that degree. And in 2020, that group of people on average is doing pretty good, attachment wise, and they, uh, you know, the the cycle of attachment injury and parenting and attachment injury and parenting uh, just looks different in that group of people on average. Anyway, so let's go on to another email before I get on get on this soapbox any longer. All right. This email is from Candice from California asks, I realize that I'm a lot like Tom from Tom and Darcy. So just chiming in here if you don't watch these videos. 90 Day Fiance, there's a couple uh, named Tom and Darcy, and she is realizing she's a lot like my conceptualization of Tom. I definitely have a lot of avoidant attachment issues. I feel like I am a leaf in the wind, and I lack a sense of self due to having a narcissistic older sister and a mom that kind of encouraged walking on eggshells for my sister, hence where I probably lost my voice and my sense of self. I haven't been in a a relationship in years, and I am completely unhappy in my dead-end job. I was curious, what would you recommend to people like me and Tom? If you have any advice on how to find your sense of self, uh, end of email. Yeah. So just to review Tom in this TV show uh, that he presented, uh, it's hard to tell. Obviously, it's a reality TV show. I can't really know. But from what they showed us, there seemed to be a possibility an hypothesis that I would explore with him if he were my client. He's not. But if he was, I would explore uh, avoiding attachment with him and also lack of self and because he seemed like what I called in the show a leaf in the wind, just affected by what was going on around him in that he doesn't seem to know what he wants. His life isn't really directed by him. He's very reactive to what is happening around him. You know, if Darcy liked him, then he was really into that. And then another woman likes him. He's into that. And then he you know, had a difficult time really standing firm on, you know, what do I want? Because uh, I don't – think he really knew what he wanted and I don't think he knew that he didn't know what he wanted if that makes any sense you know that that's one of the curses of lacking a connection with yourself is that you don't know that you lack a connection with yourself and if you don't know that you, you, you operate because you look around and you're like well everyone else seems to be you know making choices so I guess I'll make choices too but the thing is is that other people who are in connection with themselves when they make choices they're actually generating that choice from their emotional core they're generating that choice from a long term you know years and years and years of connection with their value system and who they are as a person and how they can predict if they are going to uh, enjoy that decision or not you know the decision to leave your job or not requires the ability to look inward and say how am i going to feel if i quit How am I going to feel if I stay? How am I going to feel if I experiment with a new job? How am I going to feel uh, at this other sort of career? How would I feel? You know, you need to be able to predict that. Well, how do you predict that? Well, you have a long-term experience uh, track record of experimenting with life and noticing how you feel about it. You know, for me, for example, I know uh, a lot of things about myself. So if someone told me, that, look, we have a career for you, and you are going to work in an office from 7 in the morning until 5 at night, and there's going to be a lot of meetings, but it's going to be glorious. You're going to be famous, and you're going to earn a million dollars a year, and you're going to look fat, fabulous in a three-piece suit. Well, uh, if someone asked me to try on that career and they're like, hey, you know, i give you this career, I'd be like, nope. <laughs> uh, I, I know I would hate that. In So many different ways. I would hate to be cooped up in an office all day. I would hate waking up early in the morning. I'm not a morning person. I'm a, I'm a night person. I would hate doing something for money because that just does not interest me. Um, I need to do something that's very meaningful to me and creative. And how do I know that? Well, because I've experimented with my life. You know, when, when they say as a teenager, you find yourself. Well, a big part of that finding yourself is through experimentation. That's what that's what teenagers do. They experiment. You know, for uh, a month they are, um, you know, a skater kid, and for another month they're a top forty kid. Uh, you know, another month they're very social. Another month they're very emo. Another month they're into this and that. You know, another month they like to write poetry. Another month, you know, and not always, but you know, you get my uh, vibe here. Is that the teenagers try out a lot of different things. And through that experience, uh, if they early in life were allowed to connect with themselves, they will learn. Hmm. I like that. Ooh, I do not like that. Ooh. I think that has potential there. Oh no, I don't like that. Or I like this kind of relationship. I don't like that kind of relationship. And if you're not in connection with who you are and how you feel and your needs, then you will proceed cuz you look around and you're like well everyone else is making choices and making decisions so i'm just going to i'm just going to do that too all the while never really satisfying one's needs every once in a while randomly meeting your needs because a broken clock is accurate twice a day but the vast majority of time of the time not meeting your needs and the person is like how come i feel so unhappy you know i'm making choices the way everyone else makes makes choices how come i'm so unhappy well Because you're not in connection with who you are because of the way you were raised. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is therapy, long-term therapy, relational therapy. Spending a lot of time reflecting on how you feel and what you want in the presence of someone who cares. This is very scary. It's hard to trust. At first, you're going to be very blank, and you're going to be like, I don't know how I feel. I don't know what I want. But that's how you make those connections. Think of it like you're developing these tiny little spiderweb spiderweb silk spin, you know, little strands in connection with your emotional center and who you are and what your needs are. You're every time you ask, what do I want? How do I feel? And you really reflect, but you see, you don't see anything. You're like, I don't see anything. You're making a little bit of a connection. And then you ask yourself it again. Someone asks you that question and you go, I, you know, I don't know how I feel and the person says, "Well, I don't know. I kind of notice maybe you're feeling this way cuz your your body language tells you this. Do, do you feel this?" And you're like, "Huh, do I feel that? I don't know." And it's very distressing at first, you know. A lot of people when they're if they have significant deficit in this area, it's not a pleasant feeling. It's it's very scary actually to be like, "Wait, I don't know what I feel. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I want. Oh my god, I'm in the abyss." It can be very scary. That's why you need someone there. To guide you through it and to ground you and be like, it's fine, you're fine. Um, the The key to remember is that there is a self down there. It's there. It's strong. It's it's a thing. You are somebody. You do matter. You do have emotions. You do have values. You do have wants. They're rudimentary because you haven't had a chance to develop them. But they're down there. You just don't have a connection with them. And the more you build that connection, the faster. Uh, you'll be in connection with them and the the stronger that connection will be. And and I've done that with people where, you know, a year, two, three, four into it, uh, they're, like, pretty connected to who they are and how they feel. And in the beginning of therapy, if I ask them, you know, what do you want to do? They're just like, well, you know, my wife wants me to do this and my boss wants me to do that and my dad wants me to do this. And I'm like, okay, great, but what do you want to do? And they'll be like, well – you know, I can live with it. And I'll be like, well, that doesn't really tell me what you want. What do you want to do? Well, uh, I kind of feel like I need to do this because financially this is going to work. Okay, great. What do you want to do? Well, um, I don't know. I, I feel like I could live with this, this choice. Okay. But what do you want to do? And I just keep doing it and I keep doing it. And then fast forward two and a half years and I say, what do you want to do? And there's, they say, well, my dad wants me to do this, but you know, I don't know if I want to do that. I feel like I don't, I've never liked doing that. Dun, 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 we have arrived. And it, you know, we just keep iterating on that and going down the road. It's a process. And the analogy I've always used is you're looking into your bedroom and you open the door and all you see is black abyss. You see nothing. You just see darkness and you're scared because you look into the darkness and you see nothing. You think there is nothing. You see nothing. You're, there is nothing. Well, every time you ask yourself, how do I feel? What do I want? And someone asks you those questions. How do you feel? How do you want? What do you want? And you uh, have someone that you know gives you an opportunity to reflect on those things and really gives you a space to, to, to think about it. Um, you're slowly turning up the dimmer switch on the lights. And you ask yourself, you know, six months of therapy, the lights are up a little more. Now you can actually see the outline of a bed and the outline of a chair and the outline of a poster. And you're like, oh, there's shit in there. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but pretty sure that's a bed. Not sure. Another six months of therapy turning out. Oh, actually, the bed has a comforter. Oh, the chair. Then there's a desk. Oh, the poster is um, Kirk Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the poster is... um you know, uh, two live crew. (laughs) Uh, It's getting late. All right. um, Let's do I'm almost done with this list. Let's let's power through the rest of these. All right. This last email is from Colleen from the UK. She writes, from my behavior, I believe that I have avoidant attachment, because I will shut down and pull away when I'm hurt. But I can't work out why my single mother was very present and caring when I was younger. In my teenage years, she behaved recklessly with her relationships, and I had to make my own decisions on what was best for me and who I let in. I insisted on going to boarding school despite having a loving and caring mother. I don't fit the normal description of an avoidant attached childhood. I'd really appreciate if you you could comment on this. Okay, this is an interesting email. So, Colleen from UK, you're saying that when you look at your adult attachment style and reactivity, you tend to shut down and pull away. Uh, but when you look back on your life, you're like, but I don't fit the description. I don't know what description you're comparing it to, but you're like, my mother was very loving and very present and very caring. I had a great childhood. She was a great mother. But then you sprinkle in these other details. <laughs> like, she was a single mother, so right there it has some potential problems right there, because um, that's not Again, you know, Certainly a, a single parent can raise kids well for sure, but there's potentially more details there. You also say that she behaved recklessly with her own relationships. You also say that you had to make your own decisions on what was best for you and who to let into your life. And you also insisted on going to boarding school. So um, what this points to is that although your mother – and I don't know, of course, but as a possibility – that your mother was great, and she was present and caring and loving, and you have a great relationship with her. And she was neglectful of you throughout your life, or particularly when you were younger, Um, either result of being a single mother and being stressed out, or maybe her parenting style was a little on the neglectful side. Um, You say that you don't fit the profile, but given your description, you fit the profile to a (laughs) T. Um, There are two types of parenting in general that will result in avoidant attachment. One is just sort of classically bad parenting. You know, Uh, we could sort of go down that road. But there's another category of parenting where the parents are lovely, wonderful, nice, respected, create a, a nice home. But they're not really there emotionally for their children when they're young. When the kid is having distress, the parents, you know, it takes them a little longer to notice. When the child bids for attention, the parents are just a little slower to react to that. The parents are just a little more like, well, you know, I'd rather have the kid play on on their own. Uh, I have other things to do. You know, I'm busy with this or whatever. Now, when you look back on a childhood like that, you'd be like, I love my parents. They were great. Everything was great. We didn't have any abuse. There was no conflict. We had all these great times. But when push came to shove and you were needy and there was something important that you were going through that required attunement from other people, and we're talking when you're two years old, three years old, things you don't remember very well, then if you have a parent that doesn't respond fast enough, or often enough, or in a loving enough way, then you will develop avoiding attachment for sure, as evidenced by the fact that you went to boarding school, which is also another opportunity for neglect. Uh, When kids go to boarding school too early, I mean, John Bowlby, the originator of attachment theory, himself went to boarding school when he was young, and talked about how that was tremendously uh, traumatizing to him. And and created all sorts of attachment issues for him in addition to having a nanny instead of parents who cared for him. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, so that's my comment on that is that um, uh, you describe a lot of avoidant behaviors and fair amount of evidence that you're, although your mother was great, um, maybe not entirely attuned enough when you were very young and maybe throughout your life. Anyway. All right. We did it. I answered every single emailed question about attachment. Please do not ask me another question about attachment for a while. (laughs) Some of you have already probably emailed me in the time that you've been listening to this episode. I don't know. But uh, suffice to say, I'm not going to be answering questions about attachment for a while because there's so many other things to talk about. I feel like I, I feel like I've done my duty with this. And it's been fun. It's been interesting to kind of mull over everyone's reactions and thoughts and questions and kind of going over some of the specifics there. And patrons out there, you rule and take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.